General Vagon has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Welcome to the Lead Pursuit Podcast, a podcast covering Blood Red Skies, a game of World War II aerial combat. Today I'm joined by Chris, and we're going to talk about his hobby experience getting into the game Blood Red Skies. Now, you've previously heard from Brett and how he picked a Luftwaffe faction and the Japanese faction to work on some aircraft, some paint schemes, but we're going to concentrate on what Chris used to get started in the game, how he was inspired, and then some of the technical hurdles he had to overcome. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Hey, pretty good, man. Awesome. Good to talk to you again. Okay, Chris, so why don't you walk us through how you picked your faction in the Blood Red Skies game? Well, like I said in the in the first interview, I got really hooked years ago in computer um, gaming. And um, th that was when online communities were first starting to grow. And I was playing a game called Isle 2 Sturmovik, which is an Eastern Front computer game. And it mainly has the Luftwaffe and the, the, you know, the Russian squadrons in it. Uh, later on, they expanded it to basically be the entire World War II theater. But I always kind of stuck on the Russians. Um, I was always fascinated with the Isle 2 Sturmovik, the actual aircraft. So being a flying tank and um, actually putting concrete in the wings to make it more durable. And so it was kind of a natural thing when, when we all started playing Blood Red Skies and you were definitely going to play allies uh, with the RAF. And, you know, we, we had Brett over there already wanting hold to do on, Hold on, hold you, on. You act like you were in from the beginning. Now, for no, full disclosure here, I want everybody to know, somebody sat there while we knew that we were buying a lot of models as we played a demo game with John Russell. And he kind of laughed at us about, oh, you suckers buying a new game. I'm going to go buy some MDF terrain. I seem, That's how I seem to remember this all. <laughs> that is honestly how it went down. Okay, I, I just honestly, wanted to make I will, I will sure we get that right. I went for free pizza. And, oh, you uh, did. Wait, hold on now. So what's your, what's your favorite kind of pizza? So pepperoni, man. Is there okay, any so other kind of pizza? John Russell, just in case you free, want free to pepperoni get, pizza is my get Chris to any event, then free pepperoni pizza, and he'll pretty much just show up. So just in case you're <laughs> curious, in case you need a really good painter and a guy who's meh, an average player, but <laughs> you want him to show up, that's all it takes to get Chris there. All right, keep Absolutely. going. Absolutely. All right. So, yeah, so I, like I said, I, I, I got into the Russian side because it was one, the one that was available. But like I said, I've always been fascinated with Russian aviation just because they have a, such an amazing story with coming out of the purges and losing a lot of their pilots and their senior leadership uh, to Stalin. Um, and then basically trying to put this thing together on the fly facing the Nazi war machine. It was right. an interesting time to be in the air. And another really fascinating thing about playing the Russian faction, especially in Blood Red Skies, is the fact that you do get to, I mean, for lack of a better word, cheat. And because of Lend-Lease, there are very few aircraft that are off the board for you. Um, the Russians were getting supplied through Murmansk and, and Iran with just tons of Hurricanes, Spitfires, Warhawks, P-39 Era Cobras, all kinds of platforms. In fact, by the end of the war, there were very few Allied frames that they hadn't flown um, in, in, you know, sometimes in really small numbers, like when you get into the P-47 and the, and the Mustangs. But still, they were flying them. And, and those numbers dwindled, and their aviation 
basically by backwards engineering started improving to the point where they they were putting their own planes at volume in the air but like i said it just gives you an air force that has a huge amount of airplanes you can play and yeah, put well, them absolutely on the and, and and the nice thing is then you don't feel like you have to proxy sometimes because sometimes you get out there and a bunch of people want to play like we had we had uh 2v2 uh, matches out there and, and people want to play and you go well i'm out of russian fighters what do i do ah, let's grab some american ones give them something for lend lease so it yep. uh makes it real easy it does it does and it's it's fun for me to paint because i am more of a painter than a war gamer so for me this gives you a whole nother level of painting that you can do just because of all the different lend lease frames you have but also the russians are a, an army that wasn't known for you know, having a strict way that they did everything basically because they were doing it on the cheap. So when it comes to colors and things like that and camouflage patterns, there's just so much variation that's basically, it was based on necessity and not the science of warfare. So, well, so, so let's talk about that. Of, you know, where, where did you really get your inspiration? You know, there's, there's obviously a lot of color plates you can get out there, but yeah. those may only be representative of certain well-known aces, well-known battles. What did you draw on? So I, when I when I got into the Eastern Front stuff and started studying World War II, there was a book series called Red Star uh, Black Cross, which is it was a really obscure series of volumes of books, but it was supposedly soup to nuts, everything about the Eastern Front when it came to aviation. And I read those things. And that's honestly where a lot of this came from, because in that book, it goes to the detail of who was doing what, when, who was painting how, when, where were the aircraft coming, um, and why they were doing all these things on the fly and differently. And so that's where a lot of my inspirations come from. And then then I jump off into the Osprey books because, you know, one, I'll figure out, okay, let's look at hurricanes. Let's look at what aces were flying hurricanes. Let's look at what squadrons were flying hurricanes. And, um, and that was, you know, then I picked the hurricane models up and started painting them based on one of the guards units that flew around Stalingrad at the time. And that's that's how it works for me is is I get interested in something uh, like, for instance, right now, I, the Normandy Nemo, which were a group of free French that were flying for the Russians, uh, flew Yak ones. I've just been able to get through miscellaneous miniatures, some of their decals. So the next thing we're going to do is a Yak squadron for the free French Normandy Nemo pilots awesome. that flew for the awesome. Russians. So stuff like well, that, you know, it's just, and it's, which, everything is different. Which of the Osprey books uh, did you use? Was it one specific for the Russians? Was it kind of a Lend-Lease and, and Hurricane, yeah, there, Worldwide the, Hurricane Aces? Or Yep, there's two, there's two books. One is the um, Lend-Lease Soviet Airplane book, uh, which basically goes through all of the major frames that they used with some great color plates for each one. And the other one is one that's just called Soviet Aces of the Eastern Front. Okay. And it, it just, it goes through all of their aces. So you've got Russian aircraft in there and Lend-Lease aircraft in there. You've got both. Wow. So good. Okay. Those are the two main books I'm using for inspiration. Okay. So going from that, you know, how did you, how'd you pick those paint schemes saying that there's a, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of diversity here. What necked you down to what exact paints you needed and how did you uh, procure those paints? Was it uh, like Brett and I did where you said, all right, screw it. I'm just going to buy a package set. Or did you uh, really go out there and, and have to pick out individual discrete paints from a manufacturer? Well, being a painter for a long time um, and an airbrusher for a long time, I owned a lot of the colors. Oh, oh yeah, I forgot you have not one hobby space. You have two hobby spaces in your house. 
I, I do. I've got yeah. a downstairs, what I, what I call the laboratory, which is where my airbrushes are. And then I've got an upstairs paint table so I can watch TV and talk with my wife. Ladies she's, gentlemen, she's also you a painter. Why so. we don't like Chris this. <laughs> this right here is why Brett and I don't like Chris. Actually, it's why I don't like either of you. Brett has an entire wargaming room and you have two paint studios. So. Well, he's got a wargaming room and a lab. You've got to remember. That's true. So he's got That's two true. huge spaces also. Right. So yeah. I pretty much play games on the dining room table and paint on my <laughs> photography bench that's four feet behind my podcast studio, which is on the same desk with my work computer. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Winning. Yep. Glad I opted not to go to college and just, you know, get a job right out of the Marine Corps. <laughs> Apparently I get that. <laughs> so back to, back to where we were with paint. Um, the first squadron I painted, I wanted to do my ace, of course, because if you're going to have a Blood Red Skies army, you want at least one ace, and every army's got one. So I picked the only ace that was available at the time for me, which was Lydia Litvak. And uh, so the first squadron I did was doing some research on her unit and getting the color scheme that they were using, which was a, which was a black green um, and a almost a more brilliant armor green. So luckily, um, I had colors that met that on the shelf. Uh, one of the things with the Russians is that they're not like, you know, the, the Luftwaffe or the, the Brits, where they had very, very exacting color palettes that they used. Um, and they had like Luftwaffe approved paint. You know, this is this is the actual color you're going to use. The Russians, it was kind of like whatever factory was producing whatever color that you got your hands on at the time. So even the rivet counters out there can't walk up to you and go that that shade of green is just a little too light or a little too dark because Honestly, there's no way to, to, to prove it. <laughs> so it does yeah, give you a little bit more. That is the convenience of working with uh, some of the uh, the air armies. And, and it's funny looking at, ahead to the stuff for MIG Alley. It's kind of the same with how the MIGs are painted. In some cases, they painted over the numbers that came out of the factory. Some yep. cases, they kept them. Some cases, they put square red noses on. Some cases, they were slashed. So yep. there's uh, there's a lot of variety in there in, in a yep. wartime uh, Russian uh, and Chinese and North Korean air forces. Yeah. And, and a lot of the Lindley's airplanes that came to the Russians already had paint jobs on them. Like all of the hurricanes had roundels so that the, the, not, or the, the Soviets would go in and they would paint over just the roundel on some of the aircraft. And then they would, they would put the red stars. So it's kind of neat. You could almost see some of the roundels coming through the paint. I've considered trying to get to that level of detail, actually putting a roundel down and then, putting some shaded paint over it and then putting a star on top but three at the scale three at the scale rule. i know at the scale that gets a little ridiculous <laughs> but it is fun to do and i did make sure oh, that on my hurricanes i put the spot of paint at least where the roundel would have been and then put the star on top so right nice good you know. that's good well that's, that's good detail yeah. because that that's the level of historical detail that is value added uh whereas you know a lot of times counting the exact number of kill markings on an airplane for a certain day uh, at this scale, yeah. uh, you go, you guys have, have lost the focus of what we're trying to do. <laughs> it works well for me as a crappy model yeah. and a horrible painter. So anyway, but, so moving on to to those paints. So you, you pretty much already had most of the paints you needed. Yeah. Um, when you went to technically put it down, I mean, you don't have to worry near as much, obviously, as Brett as a Luftwaffe player with splinter camouflage where he's got, you know, straight lines he has to make sure look correct. It's not the same as... The RAF, which I, I didn't execute this way, but I've seen some RAF uh, players have, where everything looks like a stencil because it was, because yeah. their camouflage wasn't freehanded. So um, were there any technical challenges, anything that, that really you suddenly found, um, either painting at this scale or just 
just painting the style of camouflage that, that she really hadn't been prepared for that. She said, okay, this is, this is a new technique I need to master just to do these miniatures. Absolutely. Um, coming from a 28 millimeter background and being a person who likes to paint large vehicles, probably more than infantry. Um, yes, I love those I, big vehicles in 40 day. Super. <laughs> Let me bring my Thunderhawks. Oh, okay. Well, so for two podcasts in a row now, 40K community, yeah. you can hate me. Don't care. And, and well, and the 40K community probably knows who that guy is that you're impersonating. I, they they probably perfectly. <laughs> they probably do. They're like, I, but, I met that guy at Adepticon. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least he wasn't but, at yeah. our heresy tables. He was at the 40K. Yes. Table. So I couldn't do what I normally did, which is just use using masking tape to do a lot of a lot of the work that I do. I used to use a lot of Tamiya um, masking tapes. Tamiya also makes some curved line masking tapes, which are really awesome. And I started out trying to use those on the aircraft, but it's just, they're just too tiny. Um, you can't get the paint to stick good. Or I mean, you can't get the um, the tape to stick good. So there, I was, you know, hey, I've got to come up with another way. And in the past, I've used Silly Putty as a masking agent, especially on like large robot models where you're, it's already together, but you've got a panel. Yes, I always it. make the, the camouflage on my towel <laughs> with Silly Putty. So now 40K towel players, you can hate me as well, not just in Absolutely. Period, so. So Absolutely. Space Marines. <laughs> So, you know, I tried the Silly Putty at first, but the other thing I found out is at this scale, trying to do tiny lines of Silly Putty, the Silly Putty just wasn't holding real right. well. Right. So I went to well, Blue I had the exact opposite. Yeah, well, so I was going to say, I had the exact opposite with BlueTac. Yeah. So I don't know if you found this problem, but with BlueTac, there's kind of a short window when you need to get that back off the model. Uh, it is. At least in my experience. And it may be because of the humidity where I was painting, but uh, there were times that... that the more the blue tack stuck and stuck in the little crevices where the uh, panel lines were. And so I found that I had to paint pretty quickly, get the blue tack off and then, yep. then let the model sit for a while. One of the things about using blue tack that you discover as you do a lot of models with blue tack, cause I was doing three squadrons simultaneously. I was doing two yak squadrons and a hurricane squadron and using blue tack to do all of them. The longer and the more you use that blue tack, the better it gets because it does get some paint and it does get some residue in it and it just doesn't it loses some of its stickiness which with the blue tag is a good thing right um, absolutely want it to back off. <laughs> as and i've been there thing, with, a, with a hobby knife picking it out of individual yep. panel lines with and, a, and try uh, pushing the blue tack against it again and sometimes it will it will lift that stuff right off Absolutely. So that that's another thing that I I discovered when I was doing it. But another thing you can do with blue tech, and it's something that we do when you're dealing with models that are larger, especially ones that resin models that don't that aren't taking paint really well. One of the things that I was taught to do is to take your paint, and if you're wearing a t-shirt or you're wearing blue jeans, put your masking tape on your blue jeans or your t-shirt first, and then pull it off and then place it on the model because it just it removes a little bit of the the tackiness that the item has so have it you tried that pull off more freely. Got your cat. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I, I live i live in a house with two fur producing monsters yep. <laughs> so I, i've only I got one that last night uh, or two nights ago as i was uh putting the matte varnish by brush on my uh on my corsair that i was still deferring it as cat hair would magically blow by and oh look there's some sticky matte varnish we'll just stick right to the airplane so yeah. I, I have had balls. to pull cat fur out of out of paint jobs since, uh, <laughs> since we got our cat last year so that is that has been an interesting addition to the house but i, I wouldn't give her up for anything <laughs> but um but yeah like i said that the blue tack and the and the tape 
methods, they work if you remove a little bit of the tackiness. It just right. helps out. And like I said, keep your blue tack. Don't throw it away. Just keep using it and using it. The more you use it, you get a little bit of paint in it. Um, so I worked into it. It just seems to work better and better. And now I've got a big pile of blue tack that honestly, it's it's kind of like a, it, it's a great item now because it really is broken. <laughs> I, I got I my blue green its, tack because it has all of yeah, its uh, green it's, overspray on it. Yep, it's it's through its break in period, so it works really well. Good. So that that's the big thing. And and with these models, with me, when it comes to priming, I'm doing usually with my resin models, I do all rattle can priming. But I found that these models are so small that what I'm doing is I'm using styling res or Vallejo primers, depending on the color I need. And I'm just airbrush priming. I'm making sure the surface of the model is really clean. And like I said, I haven't done a lot of metal airplanes yet. To be honest, I'm going to try not to do metal models. I'm going to do the AIM models and the um, plastic models from Warlord as much as possible. If there's a if there's a plastic model out there that I can replace something Warlord's making in metal with, I'm going to do that just because I like working with those materials better. Oh, absolutely. I, doing the Corsairs was a frustrating flashback to my early years of modeling when everything was in metal and uh, yeah and th there's some techniques you got to remember and there's some things you got to remember about handling it you really got to be careful uh -huh. to you get a good primer down a good base coat some details yeah. some more matte over it you know some strengthening that paint job um because yep. if if you don't then you will be regretting that as it starts to uh, to flake away on you every once in a while especially from from not washing it not having a good primer coat down those things that Maybe you can get away with uh, with some resin models that come out, and, and you obviously don't have to wash the plastic ones that come out. But the the primer coat on a lot of these is is really really important. And we'll yeah. we'll talk about that some more when we go through uh, some of the new releases because there's a, a wonderful flexibility in what Warlord's done, and that they are concentrating on putting out more rules and more expansion packs necessarily than just miniatures. But if you have to pick and choose, then choose what your what your skills match up to. Yeah, like I got the box of the the Johnny Red Squadron they came out with, which is based on a, a fictional pilot. It was a it was a comic series in England in the fifties, and it was kind of like their version of a, a Captain America character. You know, here's this British pilot who kicked crap out of the you know the Nazis, and he went and flew in Russia, and they have this make believe squadron, and and Warlord did that squadron, which is kind of cool because it, in Johnny Red the book, they have just about every type of Russian aircraft there is flying all together with Johnny Red flying his hurricane that he stole from the British military. So um, that was my first experience playing with Warlord's metal models. I did the two MiGs that came in the set. One, they're so heavy that they you have to put this, this, the base on them. And we all know that those larger bases are not gonna be friendly when you get no fur ball on the table. But the other thing is that the model doesn't even go to the flight stand really well. That connection's not really good. So you've got to right. find a way to beef that up. And I think just after that experience with those two MiG-3 fighters that I painted, I was just like, no, nope, I'm going to AIM because AIM makes all this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. From them. Well, yeah. and and I'll, you know, full disclosure, I will be getting two metal MiGs and two metal Sabres because that's what comes in the box. But yep. the rest of my MiGs and Sabres are going to be from AIM. And that's... One, because of, of the resin piece, but two, for me, it's it's just being able to work with that model. And if I want to customize something, do some green stuff work, it, it, in my experience, those things take better on on some of these resin models than they do on the um, on the metal models. Yeah. And I just I, I also the, the 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 stuff that Warlord's producing in their plastic line is just it's really, really good stuff. I mean, it is. The it panel is. lines are so deep on the hurricanes and the yaks that it makes it just 
it makes it so wonderful to well, paint. Because it's you the same way on the P51. And I really yeah. enjoy the quality of that model after having moved from the box set where the the um, Spitfires weren't bad and they had some good detail in them, but they had very thin plastic. So yeah. you, you move to the P51 and now you've got these really deep panel lines that, mm -hmm. that are a lot of fun to, to accent. And, you know, in defense of their metal models, I'll, I'll say the panel lines in the Wildcat were much more fun to work with. And part of that's also because of the, the lighter paint scheme for Guadalcanal. Um, then when I was doing Major Boyington's Corsair, because those panel lines, they, they didn't seem as, as deep in the model. And then, of course, when you put a dark coat on the upper side of the airplane like they had um, during the 1943 phases, then it's it's really hard to kind of break that out without going down the the highlighting and, and, and low lighting and doing a bunch of painting techniques that I'm really not interested in right now. Yeah. I'm interested in being able to, to wash some lines, touch up some detail and, and get models on the table quickly. Yep. And, you know, like I said, it, the, the plastic stuff that they're making is just gorgeous. I, I have found the Spitfires to be an issue. I got the box set for my son, Cody, and uh, I started working on the Spitfires. By the way, Brett, your freaking hot water method is the bomb. So thanks for finding that. I, would, I boiled some water the other night and put my Spitfires in it. By the way, you only need about two seconds with the Spitfire wings in the in the hot water. And that is the beauty of the completely malleable. <laughs> and, and always have running cold water right next to you. And I, I actually put them in there bent the wing the way I wanted it, put it under the cold water and boom, it was, it was set immediately. Did you so have to you apply really... constant pressure while it was under the cold water? Or did you just throw it under the cold water? I did a technique where I put the cold water on the, the, basically the root of the wing up against the fuselage. And as uh, I pulled it bet from between my fingers, going, running the cold water across the wing okay. and kind right. of giving a bending effect because yeah. you do want a little bit of that upper up sweep upswept wing just a tad bit on all of the aircraft right and i was, and able I was to assuming this is this is like a lot of our resin techniques where you need to just keep a little bit of pressure on it to yep. ensure yep. that it bends the way you want because otherwise you're kind of leaving it to the the plastic particles to decide what the right way to go is yep and for those of you out there who have not dealt with resin models because you know the resin models from aim they're they're good resin but please 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 always remember that a hot car is the death of your models um <laughs> i have known way too many gamers who got into the resin side of yes, modeling who came from the plastic side of modeling who made the mistake of saying it's not that hot outside and leaving their models out for an hour and a half in their car and come out and you've got just drooped goo and um it's hard to fix once you get a paint job on it and yep absolutely you're, you're gonna ruin your paint so just watch that guys make sure you're keeping your models cool and treat them like a kid don't leave them in the car <laughs> and wipe their butts wait no that's not what we're no, saying okay no, no. yeah you don't have to do that part of it <laughs> okay no, so that moving, was the big thing i found with that so so moving on from from some of those techniques were there were there any things that you ended up repainting any any of those miniatures where you said you know i thought this scheme was going to look good it just didn't translate to one two hundredth or I thought this technique was going to turn out and, and get me that right um, balance of colors. Yeah, no, it doesn't really look like the camouflage looked. Yeah, the, the big thing was and it was not looking like the camouflage looked. Um, I did the same thing as Brett made the same mistake. I kind of looked at a bunch of panels, a bunch of different airplanes. And when I jumped off doing my first Jack Squadron, it was just kind of like, OK, let's just stick some let's stick some blue tack on there. Let's go. Let's see how this looks. And then when I pulled the blue tack off of it, after the second, second color was applied, I kind of looked at it and looked at some plates again. I was like, 
eh, it just doesn't look right. Those those lines aren't in the right place. It looks kind of wonky, looks kind of odd. So I did end up repainting an entire squadron. And once I did that, I went back on the internet and found some top views, which are really important when you're doing camouflage. Most of the panels you see are just, you know, just side profiles. So when you're doing the research, find, you know, some 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 top views, some bottom views of the camouflage, and that helps a lot. And, and that's that is true. Now, what I'll also say is that's both the good thing about the Osprey manuals and that, that they do generally have top views, but that's also the bad thing because they have a heck of a lot more side views of really cool yep. paint jobs than top down views. Now, you know, then you're at the mercy of the Internet. So I've gone out there and and, and I'll use once again, you know, Major Boeington's uh, F4U Corsair uh, at uh, um, 1943 going over that and just finding how many different interpretations of the colors of where the colors should be and even with where the roundels should be so the, the last one really surprised me because i said to myself i'm like i think i know what was standard for marine corps aviation at that time I'm like but but let me go out there and look and of course that that piece became a little bit different because as people know the black sheep squadron was rapidly going through airplanes. They were operating from a variety of different locations. They were changing paint jobs. So, so thankfully, there's a little bit of the uh, the Russian scheme there where I can go, hey, man, they hadn't put the bottom roundels on yet on this one that I painted up this day, you know, because there's yeah. there's various versions of, of each one of these aircraft, whether it's White 86, uh, 883, any one of those other aircraft that you see them depicted sometimes with totally different insignia. And then God forbid you go out and look at, at what a diecast model company does, and they may have, you know, red-edged U.S. roundels. And you go, pretty sure he didn't use that on his early airplanes, but yep. it's one of those things. Yep. And one of the things when you're on the Internet and you're searching for profiles of airplanes, don't just go and put the airplane in and say, paint scheme, this airplane. One of the things that I have found is there are a what lot What do you mean? Of, that, that, that's how I look for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how I started out looking for them. And when I was looking for them, I stumbled on the fact that there are a lot of, you know, grognardy, freaking oh, yeah. rivet counting, Absolutely. nerd sites for guys who make military historic models in like 135 scale. Um, and on those sites, there are companies out there, many of them in Russia and many in England. I think Tamiya also does this, but they make stencils for camouflage. So you can actually look online for certain airplanes. And if you start typing in things like stencil, decals, um, a lot of those sites will come up. And in those sites are pictures that have top views, bottom views, side views, and actually show you not only where the decals go on, but the camouflage patterns by year. So well, and, and just I can't say enough deeper. about some of those grognardy sites, as we'll call them. Um, because when I was doing my Dust 1947 walkers, I relied a lot on that to go out and find um, tank camouflage patterns that were appropriate to my army that was Brazilian Expeditionary Force post uh, post Italy campaign. So it wasn't just U.S. olive drab. It was, you know, what what South American patterns would we have put on to match South American terrain? Um, yeah. And it was a great resource. I could go in there and I could for for one of the armor sites, I could pull up. Um, tanks from Uruguay, Paraguay, Chilean tanks, what their schemes look like all the way uh, from, you know, 1930s through modern. And so you could say, well, I want to look at a Bolivian Stuart. <laughs> yeah. and, it would, and it would show you as much data as they had. And then occasionally they also had photos, which was always good, uh, realizing that a lot of them were, were museum pictures with, you know, very thick 
uh, non-corrosive paint put over to uh, to preserve the actual vehicle. So it may not have had the the exact tone or the exact color that you were looking for, but you, you kind of got a feeling off of a lot of those where that extra detail was that you don't always get from a side panel, that you don't always get from just a, a quick description of what the what the color specs that were supposed to be on there, because that's why I both love and hate Vallejo at times, is they will tell you exactly what the name of the U.S. color was, what its you know color spec was, and they'll tell you that was what was on there. They don't always tell you how to simulate that same color spec that's been in the South Pacific sun for a year and a half, and no one bothered to repaint. <laughs> exactly. So there's and, there's uh, a little bit of modeling, modeling uh, guru that you got to go in there and go, I'm going to go see what other people have done to take something that should be U.S. intermediate blue and make it sun faded. Is it yep. the same as PRU blue? You know, things yep. like that. And there's some some techniques you can use with the airbrush, um, especially with painting black. Like I plan on doing one squatter and a Zeke. So I, I won't lie. I'm I'm getting a I've already got a squatter in Corsairs. I'm going to do one squatter and a Zeke just so when I go to the hobby shop here because I don't have you guys around, I can hand one of the squadrons to somebody else and play a game. But when I do my hey Zeke's guys, the- you want to play Blood Rage guys? <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's much so much better than 40k. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying Sorry, to get some guys not, not converted other you. things. I know. Trying to get some guys converted up here. But if then, only you had a barn somewhere within a few hours drive where they had battles of large tables and lots of games. Hint, yeah, hint. But Ryan's battle barn is five and a half to six hours away, depending on traffic. And that's just Dedication. I can't get down there every weekend. Do I, it is. Do I? I get down there at least <laughs> once every three months. But right. so in fact, I'm going to Hog War Gaming Camp. Um, in August, which is four days in Indianapolis, where we're actually staying at a camp that's going to have all the food provided, and it's just one hundred percent four days of wargaming. So oh, that's, that's, that's Chris that is going to camp. Yeah, you're going to make some special friends there. <laughs> I am, and I'm going to take Blood Red Skies. So it'll be the first Good. time I get to introduce that crowd to Blood Red Skies. Awesome. So, and we'll we'll do some interviews with those guys down there and get some good pictures of the games because they're just a great group. They play everything from dust to BattleTech to. Um, everything the different warlord games 30k you know there'll be all kinds of stuff going on and the guys are they love coming to those events because they get to play different systems so i've already had a lot of guys say hey good thing you're bringing this because i've kind of looked at it but i don't know anything about it well and and as much as i bust on the the 40k and even the heresy community at times um one of the the good things that i've seen and, and heard on listening to a couple of the podcasts is the desire to go play something fun something quick something yes. i don't need to build an army list for um yep. and that's kind of why i think the three of us enjoy blood red skies is it's not the the mental and painting grind like preparing for 30k 40k games are that you say i'm probably going to paint a, a few quote unquote armies you know i have a few squadrons of different kinds of aircraft that'll sit on the shelf and we're going to figure out a scenario and we're just going to roll dice drink beer and have fun and yep. so in a sense what i've noticed and and you know, full disclosure, I've never played X-Wing, but it seems to me it for people who, who don't necessarily want the Star Wars sci-fi piece, if you want to scratch the historical uh, combat itch and you don't necessarily want to hang out in somebody's basement with a bunch of 60-year-old men telling you how many road wheels were on a Tiger tank, um, then then it's a, a lot of fun to do that because you can get through a game quickly. I know you know, working through some of the uh, MIG Alley playtests, that, that was 45 minutes or less per game um because everybody died so quickly in the jet age yeah. but but beyond that it was it was uh it's really fun to play because you you can add a lot of aircraft and i think our longest game was what probably two hours when we were down in yep. jacksonville um and that was 16 airplanes total i think that was an 8v8 or 8v10 even and that was also 
you know, guys not 100 percent knowing the rules, so exactly. stopping and checking rules. So yeah. it, it it'll speed two, up a lot. Brand new players, yeah. um, which unfortunately your son picked up the rules way too fast. So so uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I want to drive down uh, 45 minutes and go play him. I Cody's think, Cody's got one sharp brain, man. <laughs> I, I think I think Cody's off the list. I'm like, oh wow, this is his second game, and he's already pretty much got the uh, the flow of everything mastered. I'm like, yeah. I think I'm gonna keep beating up on uh, on Brent and Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I bought him a box set. He was just having a, a lot of fun. I don't get to see him a lot because he lives, you know, he's in the army and he's down in Savannah, and we're up here in in Michigan. So it was wonderful to see him, and it was fun to game with him again because when he was when he was a teen, we 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 played some Warhammer and stuff like that. So, and he's a great kid. So, um, but yeah, it, it, and plus also. I love to paint. So him saying he wanted a box of airplanes was like, yeah, I can do that for you. I can knock that yeah. out. <laughs> Gee, that just makes me have to paint another 12 airplanes. That exactly. Just... Well, that's the thing too. You know, we, we talk about beer and pretzels and we talk about how easy this game is. The fact is I knocked out 21 planes before I came down to play with you guys um, down there in Jacksonville. And I knocked those out in honestly about 10 hours of hobby time for me. Right. And, and would, I had everything done except the canopies. <laughs> yeah. And I had everything done except the canopies. And I've since finished all my canopies. I'm glad I waited on my canopies because Brett's techniques are, oh God, they speed things up. Yeah. So, and I've actually done some riffs off of them too. Um, one of the things that I found is Brett was using Gillum and Blue Glaze to go over all of his canopies, which really does tie those blues together. But the one thing I'm doing differently is I'm coming in with, uh, they call it Drakenoff Nightshade, right. which is actually more of a, an ink. Yep. And I'm just doing that in the recesses at the base of the canopy because it just sinks down in that line and gives you this hard blue line that goes all the way around the canopy. I've thought about trying that on mine because I use the equivalent of that from Army Painter, their blue tone. Yep. Use that on my Imperial Knights. So it gives them that that kind of electric blue look to the the, um, silvery part of their legs. So it looks like there's power crackles, et cetera. Um, I've thought about that. My problem is I've got those models with their canopy to where i guess i call it table ready and and i'm at the point where i'm like i want to fill out a few more of these creative air arms whether it's corsairs that are done in uh, southeast asia fleet air arm kind of colors or is it the wildcats done in fleet air arm or in north africa you know malta fleet air arm uh colors you know all these all these other things i kind of want to experiment with so i'm not sure when i'm going to get back to the canopies but i'm glad that that we all kind of talked about that and talked yeah. through each of the techniques because to be honest, I I learned off of you guys, not necessarily validating what I didn't want, but going, well, now I understand why I made the choices I did, because it was from my going in position of what a canopy should look like, yeah. not what the sky should look like. And and so that that, you know, leading it full circle, I, I absolutely like that very thin blue line down there. And and knowing that I have the the right equivalent, I may I may try that with the Army Painter series. Yep. Just just for our listeners, since this is a technical kind of um, episode, the difference between a glaze and a shade, um, as GW, that's the terms GW gives them, is that, you know, a glaze is more like a filter. It's something that you're going to apply over an entire model or an entire area, and you want it to have consistency across that entire area. That's why it ties colors together 
very well. A shade is different. It's more of an ink. And the, the, what makes it different is it's not designed to go over evenly. It's designed to pull into the recesses and pool in those recesses and make just the recesses darker. And it's done by adding surface tension breakers to the shades that aren't in the glazes. So the glaze has a lot of surface tension to it. So it's able to lay flat over a larger surface where when you're using a shade or sometimes people call them inks, the, the color will actually dry because the surface tension is not there just into those crevices and darken them up. So it's, it's why shades are effective. On that. What's I mean, that? You still need to be careful on how Oh, absolutely. Things. Absolutely. You know, I, I think we've all seen there's a number of, of modelers out there that um, they are applying this, this technique to the entire underside of, say, a Spitfire. And that produces a cool effect. I, I will say that, that because it, it's going to darken and it's going to pool in certain areas. And then sometimes it's going to pool in the middle of a panel. It, it gives you some interesting effects, but you really need to know what, what you're trying to do with that. Um, yeah. And so that's why I opt not to do that, even though I don't have a true panel wash in that yeah. sense um, where I'm, where I'm using mineral spirits to drag mm -hmm. uh, individual dirt <laughs> out of, yeah. out of a line on a panel. Um, you can use some of these same paints to give you that technique if you're smart and how you. Yeah. And, and like, if you don't use those paints to do panel lines, that is one thing I have learned about the scale. I've never used panel lining fluid in the past. I always made my own stuff, my own uh, panel lining fluid out of turpentine and larger oil paints, the big tube ones that artists use. And I've used that for years and it's always done me well with 28 millimeter. But I can tell you that at this scale, it just makes a mess. Right. And it's it's really hard to clean up. So that's why, based on Brett's advice, I jumped on and tried AK Interactive's um, panel line wash for the first time. And that stuff is absolutely amazing. You gloss your model, you touch your panel lines, that capillary action pulls it into all the things, let it dry for about a half an hour. And then I take a Q-tip and dip it in with some odorless uh, mineral spirits. And then very important step, don't just use the Q-tip at that point. It's almost like dry brushing. Get all of the fluid off that you can out of the Q-tip on by rolling on like a paper towel, all that excess fluid, then wipe the bottom of your, the area that, or whatever area you've treated with a panel line, right. and it will get rid of all of that stuff for you. Awesome. Now, one, one thing you can do, and at this scale, you don't have to do it, but I am doing it. Like my Yaks have a, a fuel cap on the top of both of the wings. And I am going to put a little bit of oil paint, uh, black oil paint down in those, let it dry a little bit, and then I'm going to streak them. So it looks like that that stuff's run across the wing because that's a, that's a really easy thing I, you can do. I'm glad you've gone to that level of detail. It's, it's kind of like <laughs> uh, one of the other guys that had uh, that was painting uh, his Corsairs that person, I think, look a lot better than mine. Yeah. Uh, and they were also the Black Sheep Squadron, so it was twice as embarrassing. Um, but it was like the the cordite from the guns streaking down the wings. And I, I looked and I'm like, that looks really cool. Um, but holy crap, <laughs> that's yeah. that's another step that I'm just I'm not to right now for the for the once again as I as I quote the three foot rule. I'm really concentrating on trying all the different schemes because to be honest, me learning these different schemes has been part of the fascinating part to go out and and see how British camouflage was applied, how American camouflage was applied. Uh, you know, and, and start to understand the the different levels of uh, of attention to detail that were in each one, because <laughs> yeah. in some places they didn't care and they just slapped on colors like we talked about. Some places 
It was very deliberate, very specific parts of the airplane. So, yeah. All right. Well, cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. And thanks for spending the time to talk both about the lessons you learned, the things you did right, things you did wrong, uh, along with, you know, the, the inspiration, because I think that's probably one of the tougher parts for uh, a lot of our listeners when you get away from the box set, because probably everybody's seen the Battle of Britain, the movie, or yeah. seeing something covering the RAF and the Luftwaffe in that period. All of a sudden you go out and you, and you buy any one of these other sets of, uh, of aircraft and you say, well, where's where's the rest of the codex like we're used to in so many yeah. of our other games where i could i can either for well, heresy go pull one of the black books or i can go pull a codex for 40k or or in, in a lot of these other games you, you've got a lot of historical information supplied in the book um even in bolt action i mean if you go take a look at a lot of the campaign books there's a lot of detail in there and there's example models um yeah. and that's just not where blood red skies is so i think i think a lot of the listeners need to um have in their kit bag a lot of places to go to find this information and that the inspiration and to also realize there's a reason we're playing blood red skies because we're not rivet counters because we want a yep. fun game so paint what you think looks cool if you don't like it meh strip it paint it again <laughs> yep and one of the th things about blood red skies too just on that riff is the fact that they've given us a lot of tools within this very streamlined rule set to have a lot of fun in that like the ace rules they've given you rules to make your own aces which means when you're doing your research and you're doing your research on paint schemes and you start finding paint schemes of actual aces start reading on those guys a little bit because you can build your own ace put rules from other aces on them and use them in the game and say hey you know i was a little bit myth that it looks like alexander prokrishkin who was the the hero arrow cobra uh, pilot. In fact, he had more kills in, in American aircraft than any American did during World War II, um, is, is probably not going to be represented in the game with a card just because they can't get to everybody. So what am I doing? I'm working right now on coming up with my own Alexander Prokrishkin card for my P-39 Air Cobras when I get them painted. So th there's a lot of fun stuff that you can do with this game that doesn't take a lot of time, takes a little bit of research, and it's built into the rule set for you to be able to do that, which I think that's going to make – this, this game's just got legs. It's, it's, you can expand in so many different directions. They've got so many of the airplanes out there with cards already. There's more on the way. It, it's going to be something that can hold our attention, but at the same time, you don't have to put the level of, of brain work into it that you do with something like 30K. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I was listening to a uh, 40k podcast this morning. And it was just, it was hard for me who had been playing Blood Red Skies for probably about four or five hours yesterday. And really, the tough decision was how did I choose to simulate certain pilots that truly weren't aces, but were the the ace of the engagement? And, you know, did I make him a level four? Did I make him a five and give him a skill just so that he he had that same level of of influence on the on the aerial engagement that he did in history? Um, but I'm listening to this podcast going, my God, there's more stuff about 40 K I've got to go back and read. I'm like, Oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to write a new list. <laughs> hey, so I've, it's, it's one of those moments where I've, I've enjoyed becoming a lazy blood red skies player where, where oh, the question is, which models do I want to pull out today? <laughs> I, I'm one of those guys that when, you know, not to make this another, another games podcast, but when, when 40 K jumped to the new eighth edition rules, dude, seventh edition is where i'm at it's where i'm going to be and that's why i'm solely a 30k player now because i i, I know my special enjoy role. your horse and buggy there absolutely buddy. driving the automobile it's fancy <laughs> it's newfangled invention <laughs> all right you, 
stick around in seventh. Have fun. He's I, not you a know, fan, man. I, I, I love seventh and eighth, and we'll we'll talk for just a moment about you know yeah. other games out there because this this isn't just a Blood Red Skies podcast. Yeah. I love seventh and eighth because they do things differently, and it's kind of the same reason why I wouldn't mind going back and playing Air War if I had a week to read the rules and to push counters around. Um, as a comparison with Blood Red Skies, I, I like them for different reasons. Blood Red Skies is amazingly simple in how it models maneuvering, which as I was playing jets on the table versus props yesterday, it was a little frustrating to me to figure out how do I do what I know the airplane would do at this point? Um, because I'm still in a framework of burning advantage, making turns at certain points. Yeah. And and so there's there's things that have been vastly oversimplified, just like in eighth, uh, things that have been vastly oversimplified, hello, facing yeah. <laughs> hello aircraft and facing yeah <laughs> um but they're done for a reason either for game speed or for the, the the condensing of time um that we're taking something that should be simultaneous action breaking into two turns and then we're going to have to condense the entire flight path of an aircraft into a 48 inch move um yeah. and he really would have zipped around the battlefield shot who he wanted and then reassumed this position at the end of that period of time uh, so yeah. i think I think that's one of the things that, especially getting into Blood Red Skies from a lot of these other games, that you just have to realize is don't don't always roll in with your, and I'll use 30K as an example, your world of perfect facing, perfect cover, really WYSIWYG, which sees what you get. You know, there's that that level of execution in 30K. Don't think about that in Blood Red Skies because realize the planes in reality are a lot smaller for their movement distance than the models you yes. have. The The inability to have overlapping bases I'm like, really? I could be about three th feet from this guy and still shoot him. Uh, you know, there, there's there's things that have been simplified to make it a fun game. So yep. so take those in stride. Take it in stride in your modeling. Um, at least that's my recommendation, being the lazy modeler. But but then the game becomes what I think Andy intended, which is a fun historical simulation. Yep. Simulation. And that, things that is, do what? I think that's exactly where he was going with it. He wasn't looking to make... I don't see... Blood Red Skies ever being a competitive thing. I think it would be just weird for somebody to try to have a competitive tournament with it. And that's another reason why I like it. It's not about that. This is about hanging out with buddies who love airplanes and shooting airplanes down well, and laughing about I, we the say crazy that. crap that happens. We say that, and we've never played an X-Wing tournament. So I, I kind of wonder the same thing, and I wonder if there's a, with the right crowd, there's a potential to be competitive. Um, but to at the same time have fun being competitive um, because I, th I think we have that in 30k in heresy like when we play zone mortalis we go to adepticon yes. play zone mortalis very small army easy to paint easy to come up with a new theme every year and go eh, i've only got to make two squads in a dreadnought worst case um yep. but it it gives you an ability to, to invest some hobby time have some fun but trust me, when I was, you know, in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the Night Lords there, I was, there was a whole lot of competition with that guy. <laughs> there was, there was, there was having fun in the fact that we both laughed when um, random Zone Mortalis effects took out his, his headquarters, things like that. But, but there's still a competitive, um, I'm going to do my best uh, kind of, kind of level of effort to it. So I think, yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see how it matures. And if, if the community can stay mature enough that it's, all right, we'll accept some point values. We'll realize there's going to be some tweaks and we're going to realize that the rules are very generic for a reason is that we can knock these games out quickly and it's not a three hour, you know, two and a half turn, <laughs> yeah. you know, Warhammer 40K, 30K uh, kind, of, uh, kind of event. 
I, I think this too is this this has got kind of a veteran crowd, just just the feel that you get on the different Facebook groups that are concerned with Blood Red Skies. It it's tends to be and looks like it is older wargaming players. Right. But Absolutely. it's the older wargaming players that like to drink beer and like to have a good time. Right. And um not the, you know, Battle of Antietam at <laughs> with yeah, yeah. twenty thousand miniatures. <laughs> How hard does that cannonball bounce? I, I did have to laugh because, you know, I, I actually had put on my schedule this week to go out up to uh, his, Historicon up there, and uh, both uh, John Russell and uh, Mitch over at the uh, uh, No Dice, No Glory podcast, uh, both were like, hey, you're going to come up to Historicon? I'm like, no, man, I, I, I just got busy. My schedule got away from me. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't make the time to come up, even though I intended to do it. But in the back of my mind, it's been like, I can only take so much Napoleonics. <laughs> yeah. And it's probably that same feeling of dread that you and I had walking past the 40K tables at Adepticon is the same feeling of dread I have walking past the Napoleonics tables. It's yeah. it's just not my thing anymore for, for a competitive kind of game. Um, I, I always would love to do more historical modeling um, and and do some fun things like that in games, but trying to decide exactly how many Prussian riflemen and everything else i have against whatever yeah not not my idea of fun <laughs> so sorry john sorry mitch i totally ditched you guys <laughs> enjoy historicon say hi to the grognards for us <laughs> well awesome. all righty man we got well, anything thanks. else no thanks thanks for the time i really appreciate uh you spending the time to, to chat through uh, all these different hobby technique things uh, and share it with uh, with the listeners for the podcast because I know that I'm probably not going to have a whole lot of hobby techniques to share since thankfully you and Brett have covered most of the things that we've used in the initial couple of months of building up our different air forces, getting our aircraft ready, and giving them the paint schemes that at least we think they need to have to represent the time frame indicated. Yeah, so thanks for and taking we'll that. Keep putting, we'll keep putting stuff out there too, guys. Watch the Facebook page. Hit us up on Instagram. Look at the Instagram. We'll be constantly posting stuff. And honestly, with those platforms, if you have a question, if you're wondering how we would do something, or if you're wondering how we did something and we haven't talked about it, ask. That's, Absolutely. that's what we're all about, man. This yeah, is and, all about making should, the community better. Whatever social media platform you use, and less Twitter, uh, <laughs> you will probably see our stuff out there. Um, so feel free on Facebook to drop us a message right there to comment on the uh, the post you see. Uh, you'll see work in progress folders for all three of us on there to see what we're working on and where the models are. And if you go out to Instagram, you'll see uh, Chris's models and my models. And maybe when I can teach Grandpa Brett how to use social media, uh, we'll get him on Instagram and uploading his models, but I'll upload them for him in the meantime. Yep. Uh, but uh, there's there's we'll try to put a lot of our techniques and our examples out there uh, and we'd love y'all's feedback. There, there's people out there that we've seen in Blood Red Skies that are much better painters than all of us. And that's oh, yes. awesome. And so if if you are out there and you go, yeah, you guys, you're you're middle of the road, or if you're Doug, you're definitely at the bottom of the pack. But you guys have, have got some good stuff. Let me share a few techniques. Share those with us. We'll put it out to everybody. We're not we're not in this to uh to be the uh, the the best modelers in Blood Red Skies. We're here to really make the entire community better. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's all I've got. All right, brother. You have a good rest of your day. You too, man. 